0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. After a year enduring the challenges of a global pandemic, questions arise as to how we as a society prepare for unforeseen disasters, and what can we do to improve our response? In the realm of a public health crisis such as COVID-19, we need to ask who is tasked with identifying extraordinary and imminent disease threats? What signal alerts these healthcare sentinels to prepare for the worst? And what steps do they take to ensure our medical community and we the public manage the crisis effectively? Who are these experts trained to prepare for the unexpected? And what have they learned from a year of COVID-19? My guest today is Dr. Paul Biedinger, Director of Emergency Preparedness at Mass General Brigham. Dr. Bittinger additionally serves as the Director of the Emergency Preparedness Research Evaluation and Practice Program, (EPrep) at the Harvard T.H. Chen School of Public Health. He has also responded to numerous prior incidents, including Hurricane Katrina, our own Boston Marathon bombing, Superstorm Sandy, and the 2015 Nepal earthquakes. Dr. Badinger will share with us his experience as a healthcare preparedness expert enduring a year of a global pandemic. When I return, I'll be joined by Dr. Paul Badinger. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaji, and I'm now joined by Dr. Paul Bitinger. Welcome to Hubwonk, Paul
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: Paul, I'd like to start off the show by talking about uh, your expertise in emergency preparedness. I think you've seen it all. You've seen our own Boston Marathon bombing, uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, global earthquakes at a very high level. How does one prepare for a disaster that by its very definition is unforeseen?
1: Well, it's really a a complicated sort of mix of a few things. Uh, We look back, of course, in history and one of the things that seems obvious, but is actually only recent, is studying disasters like a science. Um, disasters do have an epidemiology to them, uh, how quickly patients present, what kind of injuries they have, uh, what works in the medical system. And interestingly, the, the field of healthcare emergency preparedness uh, has historically uh, been one uh, much more driven by people just making things up of what seems good as opposed to looking at disasters as a science but history only goes so far. Climate change is actually changing the world we're looking for, violent threats have changed. And of course, um, you know, the healthcare system itself is really different than what it looked like 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. So we have to look at what the capabilities and capacities and strains are of the healthcare system uh, and and look forward. Uh, And the last thing is we have to have some sort of reasonable way of looking at risk because in my world, I'm trying to think about hurricanes and pandemics and shootings and power failures and computer system failures. you, you can actually get paralyzed to inaction trying to look at so many threats in so many different ways. So we try and break it down with a structured way of looking at risk, which includes the probability. How likely is an event happen? Uh, how likely is it that an event is going to happen? The consequence. Uh, is it a severe event or not so severe? Uh, and how ready we are. And we take a uh, numerical value for each of those three elements, assign it a risk score. And that's how we figure out what we're going to work on every year and, and try and get better.
0: That's a great answer on sort of how you take the big picture view on the whole host of uh, of risks. But let's talk about uh, the most recent risk, our own pandemic. Um, I, I would imagine being at uh, in your role in early twenty twenty would have been a little bit like a, a NASA scientist discovering an Earth destroying asteroid headed our way. What were some of the signals that you uh, you first saw that said, look? we've had plenty of diseases around the world, this is different, this is this is the big one once in a century. What, what, what triggered you to realize this was different?
1: I, I would say, unfortunately, probably came in a couple of stages. I, I think as soon as the uh, overwhelming of the Wuhan healthcare system was evident uh, outside of China, that was a pretty good signal that it was at least severe, it could cause severe illness in humans, and, and the pace of the spread of disease was was absolutely significant. Um, that was early warning. I remember talking about that with a number of colleagues uh, both here in, in uh, Boston as well as around the country. But then as soon as you saw, saw it uh, popping up in other parts of the globe very quickly and, and having similar effects, then that was sort of the obvious, this is coming, this is nothing we're gonna be able to avoid uh, moment.
0: So you you uh, you saw the danger signs, uh, you were aware that this is different. How does uh, someone in your, your field Uh, sound the alarm without uh, inducing some sense of panic or, uh, let's say, uh, uh, having a a, a toxic response where people do the wrong thing?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, we activated our incident command system uh, for both my healthcare system and and the hospital where I practice on January 27th. Uh, So, uh, you know, well before, more than a month before we saw our first patient uh, in the state. Um, and what we were doing was making sure we were as ready as we could be. And that meant we were fit testing staff for N95s. We were retraining our emergency department and floor and ICU staff on isolation, which, um, th- this virus we knew already would require a different kind of use of personal protection than most of the infectious diseases we see. Um, we started dusting off our surge plans. Uh, we, started trying to develop an in-house testing capability so we'd be able to test for the, the disease itself. And it basically looked at what we knew were the pressure points with all infectious disease strains, either risk of spreading infections, surge within the system or other strains, uh, and, uh, and tried to plan um, right up until the moments that the first patients started coming through the doors.
0: It sounds like you had an effective plan within the hospital and to communicate with other health professionals. Uh, the rest of us are who don't work in hospitals had to learn uh, somewhere else. Where, um, where, how is it supposed to work? Uh, let's say even uh, in, uh, at the highest level, at the federal level, how are Americans supposed to learn about uh, what they should be doing to prepare for what you perceive to be uh, an imminent threat? How, who, who could we trust? To, you know, if, is it our uh, elected officials? Is it our news programs? Or is there some way else we learn about uh, medical threats like this?
1: I I think we have always tried to rely, uh, first and foremost, on our public health infrastructure, uh, starting with the CDC as a trusted source of of expertise, um, and then filter that down to the state and and local level. Um, I think there were ways in which that was better and worse done, obviously, uh, with with COVID. Uh, The interesting thing is that um, when you do the research about who people trust, uh, the most trusted uh, messengers actually turn out to be uh, people's own physicians. Um, but I think we don't do a good enough job uh, in this country and still have a lot of work to to, to do um, to actually make sure that frontline physicians know what they need to know early in these kinds of events from the expert uh, public health leaders. Uh, I think you know the pace of getting knowledge from the CDC to primary care physicians to the rest of the medical system was not very rapid. And I think a lot of both uh, clinicians, and then therefore the public felt uh, unprepared or, or um, uninformed uh, with what they thought they needed to
0: know. Yeah, I want to circle back to that, um, uh, some of the missteps at the high level, particularly at the CDC, later in our conversation. I want to go into the more technical aspects of the virus itself, what you saw again on the front lines. I think we, we're we now looking back at a year of, of uh, pandemic, two substantial uh, spikes, I'd say, one after the early onset of the disease where we we're still trying to manage our, our behavior and uh, mitigation uh, techniques. And one uh, that happened in the fall going into winter and spiking, uh, I guess, at the new year. Um, then in January, we saw precipitous drop nearly 80% of cases nationwide. And it, it we left us with uh, uh, asking the question, we're still indoors, it's still winter, uh, so that hasn't changed. The vaccine hasn't really taken effect. Very few people had gotten it at that point. Uh, And so there's lots of speculation as to why it would have been that such a precipitous drop would happen with no apparent cause. I've had some guests on my show that have have, uh, proffered some theories, uh, other medical professionals. What's your idea of why we had such a drop?
1: Well, I I think um, there are a couple. uh, I think with this virus from the very beginning, we have to remain humble. Uh, there is still a bunch we don't know. I think we still don't know why we have some of the hotspots in the United States that we do and some of the hotspots in the world that we do when others um, are not, when uh, they're not necessarily, you can't explain it all with infection control or public health guidance. Uh, so um, just like early on, honestly, with this coronavirus, it went against the face of public health dogma that uh, people needed to be wearing masks, that that was an effective uh, intervention outside of the healthcare setting. Turns out that, that that was absolutely what we needed and it's it's still the recommendation. Um, what I'd say is, is that we knew that the holiday season was going to be particularly challenging, that people mixing households, uh, especially eating and drinking together because they take down their masks, uh, traveling uh, and, and again, moving uh, among one another. We knew that was gonna be a significant pressure. And in fact, that's exactly what happened is that um, people eating, drinking, gathering, traveling um, uh, was, I think, one, probably the biggest factor in uh, the second wave or in what in, from a U.S. perspective was the third wave. Um, and I think the fact that people stopped doing that after the New Year's period uh, really is reflected in what we saw in, in the drop. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, we're seeing, unfortunately, rising case numbers here in Massachusetts as well as across most of the country. Um, And I think it's because, again, we're seeing more mixing. We're seeing um, people being lax with uh, mask wearing and starting to to socialize together. Um, You know, I I think, unfortunately, until we get better vaccination, we know that um, being indoors, especially with your mask down, is one of the greatest uh, um, stressors uh, that can cause uh, further disease spread.
0: Do you give any credence to the idea that... um uh, the prevalence of disease was, or at least uh, exposure to disease, uh, such that we would create T cell immunity. Uh, that we've effectively had far more cases or exposure to COVID than we know, uh, and therefore are approaching. Uh, and I know this is a loaded term, herd immunity. Naturally, uh, independent of, of vaccines. In other words, there's two two paths going on here. There's those of us who are um, uh, getting immunity from a vaccine, and those who have uh, unfortunately been exposed to the virus and developed uh, the immunity. Um, in a more natural way, do you give any credence to that theory?
1: I, I think not at that level. So I think uh, probably most people would agree that we've had far more cases than have been diagnosed, right? So if we have 30 million odd cases so far that are laboratory confirmed in the U.S., most people say it's at least double that that we've really had in the country, maybe 60 million uh, cases. But you know, that's that's in the realm of 10 to 20 percent of the population, not um, you know 50, 60. Plus percent. Um, right now, we've got uh, we're approaching 30 uh, percent of the population nationally uh, that has been uh, vaccinated at least with one shot, uh, and you know a little more than 15 percent that have had two. Um, even if 20 percent of the population has had natural um, infection, natural immunity, uh, and there's some overlap, unfortunately, you know some people who have had natural immunity have gotten the vaccine, but um, that still only gets us to you know maybe. 30%, sorry, 50%, um, which is short of the 70, 80% we think we need for herd immunity. So um, I, I think, unfortunately, if you look, even again, right now, it's what, what's happening in Massachusetts with the rising case numbers. Um, we, we've been a hard hit state uh, from the beginning and still have a significant amount of, of virus. I, I think because uh, of what we're seeing here with another, um, another rise with changing public health uh, practices, it argues against the case uh, for the fact that we've reached herd immunity so far.
0: All right, well, then let's talk about those uh, vaccines. It's you know, taking us a few questions to get here, but you're, uh, you're chair of the uh, Vaccine Committee. As the chair of the Vaccine Advisory Group, are all these vaccines safe and effective in preventing disease? Do you wanna differentiate one from another or do you wanna talk about them as a group?
1: Sure, well, well uh, so there are multiple vaccines across the globe that have versions of emergency approval. In the United States, we currently only have three. Uh, which are Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. Um, Each of the vaccines that have received emergency use authorization from the FDA has been studied uh, really rigorously. Um, The the trials that they're required to uh, adhere to, uh, or the the trial design that they're required to adhere to is extraordinary. Um, The data has to be reviewed by an independent data safety monitoring board uh, before it can even be submitted to the FDA. the FDA itself has an independent vaccine and related bi- uh, biologic projects uh, advisory committee. Um, and then the CDC has a different layer of review, which is also by an independent group called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice. So um, each of the three vaccines that has gotten an EUA has had tens of thousands, typically 30 or 40,000 individuals in each of the studies. Um, again, three layers of independent review before Uh, ultimately, uh, an EUA is offered. So um, in all three trials, uh, the vaccines have showed extraordinary protection against hospitalization or death. There have been a little bit of differences in terms of how much they can prevent any degree of symptomatic disease. Um, But as a physician, I guess I'd argue that what I care most about is keeping people out of the hospital and keeping them from dying. uh, And all three vaccines are extraordinarily effective at that. Um, And I think the safety profiles of all three vaccines are also fantastic. You know, vaccines are held to the highest bar for safety of any medical therapeutic. uh, And the reason is you give them to healthy people. So if someone else starts off healthy, uh, we tolerate very, very little uh, in terms of what it can do to them to make them feel less healthy. Um, You know, people are aware of, uh, I'm sure the, you know, press about allergic reactions or some of the other uh, questions early on with the vaccines, but really what we've seen in the real world safety trials now having vaccinated, more than 90 million individuals or give nine, more than 90 million doses, excuse me, um, is uh, we're seeing really uh, extraordinary um, uh, extraordinary concurrence about both the safety and the effectiveness of these vaccines in these very, very large populations.
0: That's very, very good news. Um, there are now in the news, uh, I just read this morning, in here in Massachusetts, we have more than 600 cases of the variant identified in the UK. Uh, but of course, there's other variants from Brazil, South Africa. Um, these three vaccines that are approved here have we exposed people with variants to these uh, the vaccinated to those with uh, to the variants? Uh, and is there any difference in the efficacy against a variant versus the original uh, Corona, novel Corona? Yeah,
1: really good question. I, I think. Um... Certainly because we have, um, in Massachusetts, individuals who've gotten Pfizer and Moderna and uh, J&J, and we do have both uh, the British and South African and Brazilian variants here in Massachusetts, I'm certain that we've exposed um, some vaccinated individuals to all three variants. Um, What we don't have is uh, complete data on the protection uh, of uh, all vaccines against all variants. But what we do know is actually pretty good. Um, the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccines have been looked at in a laboratory setting against um, the British and, and South African and um, uh, Brazilian variants and have had good, what we call neutralizing antibodies, meaning in a, in a petri dish, it looks like it works uh, pretty well. Um, and then we also have real world data. So uh, the B117, the British variant is dominant in Israel. Uh, Israel's been using Pfizer and has really shown tremendous effectiveness uh, of their vaccination campaign um, in, in the real world. Similarly, uh, I would point out that when Johnson & Johnson was conducting its studies, um, it was being tested in Brazil as that Brazilian variant was out there. And again, it showed real real world efficacy against, uh, against the variant. So um, we worry a lot about variants. It's actually one of the things that I think most worrisome on my radar screen is both the variants we know of and the ones we don't yet know of that, that may be ever, uh, evolving. But for Pfizer and Moderna and uh, and J&J, um, all three look like they have good efficacy against these variants, uh, certainly in the lab and, and so far in the real world as well.
0: So at this point, we have, I think the term is, no signs of uh, viral escape from our, our uh, vaccine regimen. We're, we're, we're safe as it looks now, as it appears now. Exactly right. Okay, now there's been a lot of concern about the way in which the vaccines have been rolled out. Um, you know, each, each state has taken its own approach. Uh, some have advocated for a pure age focused approach, largely based on uh, correlation between age and, and I guess mortality. Um, others have prioritized high risk comorbidities or um, healthcare professionals. Um, others recommend targeting communities with weak ties to the healthcare system, uh, you know, inner city communities. Uh, in practice now, not uh, not no uh, normative uh, statements here, but in practice, has any uh, evidence uh, revealed which approach has been most effective from a public health perspective?
1: So I'm not aware of evidence that has showed what was most effective. You're exactly right. The people have, have argued about a couple of different strategies for, I think, very reasonable uh, uh, perspectives um absolutely we know that age is the single biggest predictor of mortality by far when you look at outcomes from uh, covid however you also have to look at the communities that are hardest hit by covid uh, and those uh, have very clearly skewed towards uh, vulnerable communities communities of color uh, low-income communities where often the average age of those who are infected is lower and in fact the age of who is dying of COVID is lower. And so um, there's a real challenge in looking in some ways at a population-based metric um, and applying it evenly across communities. I think many states, including uh, my own, have tried to come up with a hybrid approach, which acknowledges uh, the powerful role of age in determining outcomes, uh, but also understands who's really getting infected and how. what, what can we do to most protect those communities.
0: Um, we recently learned, I mean, very recently learned that 15 million doses of the J&J, Johnson and Johnson's virus, uh, were uh, needed to be discarded, largely based on a manufacturing error. Um, beside the fact that uh, it uh, sets back uh, how many vaccines are available in the supply chain, uh, how can uh, consumers be assured that other vaccine batches aren't also uh, manufactured in a substandard way?
1: Yeah, that, that certainly was heartbreaking news. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that the first uh, reaction statements at the federal level have been that it will not affect the pace of the federal rollout and anticipating that there's enough vaccine for all adults by the end of May. Uh, I think there's more to come. I think we have a lot more to learn. Um, I, I think it's really important to know that there are incredible quality controls on the manufacturing of vaccines. It's actually one of the reasons we have not been able to manufacture vaccines even faster uh, than we already have, which is. This is really complicated stuff. It requires highly sophisticated technology and expertise. And um, the bar to become a manufacturer uh, of a vaccine is incredibly high. Uh, This is not something you can just put together overnight uh, and and start doing, even if you're already in the pharmaceutical industry. So um, I would say that again, uh, the FDA regulations, the quality inspections uh, set an extraordinary standard for the assurance of safety in the product. I'd also point out the fact that there are nine different simultaneous systems out there looking in real time at vaccine safety. Um, We've had several of these in place for many, many, many years uh, with uh, traditional vaccines um, and physicians and other clinical experts are very comfortable with how they should report vaccine adverse events in real time. It's a website that goes straight to the FDA. But there are also a number of systems that were created specifically for COVID vaccines uh, including if anybody's been vaccinated, you can download an app to report your own symptoms uh, uh, after you've had a COVID vaccine. Um, but these systems uh, crawl through healthcare data. They look at admissions, discharges to the hospital. They look at emergency department visits. They look at anything as the visits are coded for a possible vaccine reaction uh, that would pick up a signal in these millions of people that we're currently vaccinating. So, so far among you know the nine different systems, either some of these active reporting, some of them passive reporting, Uh, We haven't seen any signal of a safety problem uh, in the manufacturing or in the vaccines themselves. Um, But I think, you know, it's always good to question what, you know, what's really uh, going on. I think both on the manufacturing side and on the uh, post-marketing side, as we call it, um, so far, the systems have worked quite well.
0: Um, Now, we're quickly approaching the inflection point where our supply of vaccine will meet our demand. Uh, In other words, everyone who wants a shot can get it. Uh, But there'll be those who have not, gotten their shots and uh, uh, we want them to also get vaccinated. Uh, How will you, as the chair of the vaccine advisory group, encourage those reluctant to get vaccinated to want to get a shot?
1: Yeah, I I would say it's on all of us uh, to encourage those who are uh, reluctant to get vaccinated to to help uh, others uh, want to be vaccinated. Um, You know, this this is the textbook definition of us needing to rely on one another uh, if we get to herd immunity, um, you know, herd immunity represents a state where anyone gets an infection, but everyone around them has been immunized and therefore the virus has nowhere to go. It has no way to spread. Um, and if we don't reach that, if we, if we always have vulnerable hosts, then we really aren't going to drive COVID prevalence down in our community. And we're going to have great difficulties getting away from all the restrictions that, that none of us has liked uh, over the past, you know, 15 plus months. So you know, I think first off, we have to recognize that vaccine hesitancy uh, takes many forms. Um, for some, uh, they worry about the rapidity of the development of the vaccine or uh, how uh, quickly the rollout has happened. Others just don't trust vaccines, and and this predates COVID and uh, and 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 the COVID vaccine specifically. Um, others don't like the fact that it's a new new technology, um, and for others, it's political or or has other bases. Um, You know, certainly I think it's well documented that among uh, certain racial and ethnic groups, uh, there's a well-founded reason for mistrust in the healthcare system and the medical system based on uh, what's happened in the past uh, decades and centuries. Um, And I think, you know, that the way to combat vaccine hesitancy is to listen to each group, to listen to what their concern is and to try and address it directly. So, you know, I think we have very good answers for, why the vaccines are safe why the development processes uh, for these vaccines did not in fact take shortcuts they followed the same fba rules for vaccine development that all vaccines do uh, that these trials that were conducted for the current vaccines were not in fact smaller than previous vaccines in fact they were larger in, than, than many vaccines that have had full approval um you know a lot of people uh, i've heard want to take a wait and see approach that, that they just you know weren't absolutely against the vaccine but they certainly didn't want to be a first in line and i think it's encouraging again as we get to you know more than 100 million people vaccinated uh, very soon at least with one dose um that that's pretty good evidence that this is safe that you know there are a lot of people to look at to to know that this is a good thing um and you know i don't know how motivational honestly this is for anyone i wish it were more so uh, but help people understand we've got to do this together, that if we all want to take off our masks, we all want to go back out to dinner, we want to go to a concert, we want to socialize freely, we have to do this together. Our our collective community health depends on highly, high levels of community vaccination.
0: So I want to play off your, uh, uh, your plea for uh, uh, collective action and say, okay, if we all are in this together and we get our vaccines, we can return to normal. What what do the numbers for normal require? How many people need to be vaccinated in order for us to walk through that door back into a normal life?
1: Yeah, it's it's really two things uh, that are clearly interrelated, uh, but it's the percent of individuals in the population that are vaccinated, um, and it's the prevalence of the virus in the community, just how many individuals are infected. Um, You know, there are a lot of scientists uh, who've tried to make mathematical estimates about what herd immunity really is or means and and i think most people think it's at least 70 percent um there are a couple of people that think that it's a lot higher than that and we have to get close to 100 uh, percent i hope not because i think that's a very 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 uh challenging proposition uh but 70 to 90 percent is a number thrown around commonly i think you know ultimately we'll know when we see what the virus numbers do uh, but I, I do think that you know right now um we have you know prevalence in some parts of this country still in the double digits uh, for, for prevalence or for percentage of positive COVID tests uh, in the community. And you know we've got to get that down to 1%, lower than 1%. I, we're not gonna get rid of COVID, but what we have to make sure is that it, very few people are being infected. And so when you're out there in public, when you when you take off your mask, it is very likely that everyone around you, hopefully again, has been vaccinated and it's very unlikely that someone actually has COVID.
0: Let me uh, push back on the notion of getting, again, if some people are saying 100%, we're, you, that's, you might as well say, um, you know, never. Um, so when we talk about uh, herd immunity, um, and um, we're at the point where everyone who has a shot can get a shot, the risk to the individual who chooses not to get a shot and um, and exposes himself to the possibility of severe COVID, uh, they're taking risk with their own lives, what is the downside for allowing someone to, let's say, exercise their prerogative not to take the shot and exposing himself to danger, uh, you know, or others who have also not taken the shot? They're essentially exposing other reluctant vexers to um, to the disease, but not to those who have had this disease. What what can we say to them?
1: So I think uh, it's a great question, and I think uh, you know I, I have part of an answer, and we need data for the rest of my answer. But um, there are those among us. Um, a very few who can't get vaccinated. Some who have an allergy to uh, the vaccine components. Though usually, if you have an allergy to one com- component of one vaccine, there's another option for you. Um, then there are those uh, who have uh, suboptimal immune responses, right? So we know that the elderly, uh, unfortunately, are less likely to develop the most robust immune responses. And so even if your, uh, you know, 80-year-old uh, relative. Um, gets vaccinated, there's a chance that she or he might still be vulnerable uh, if they're uh, exposed to the virus. And of course, we know that that's the population most likely to die. Um, there are others with depressed immune systems from organ transplant or other medications they have to take um, to uh, to to keep their medical conditions under control. And really, you know, uh, I think there is a, a to me a, an ethical imperative to try and protect everyone. Uh, they deserve the same chance to. Uh, live their lives and be out uh, in society as much as uh, as much as possible um and i think you know the other thing we don't know uh yet um is uh, again how much uh subclinical or mild infections either can happen or um uh will happen uh, and then transmit disease based on the effectiveness of, of the vaccine so what i mean by that is is that um if somebody chooses not to get vaccinated they get infected and they're out in the community um if, if everyone is vaccinated uh, and can't transmit the virus further, um, then you're right. That's much more of an individual choice uh, with the exception of the vulnerable individuals I was mentioning. If it turns out that they can actually still be basically spreading virus elsewhere in the community by a number of individuals who though vaccinated and though unlikely to uh, themselves become ill, basically the wave can kind of propagate at a low level by being transmitted through vaccinated individuals. Um, again it's 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 creating a sense of community risk or it's creating threats across the community that could otherwise be mitigated so hopefully uh you know we we will have relatively few people who don't want to get vaccinated um uh, ideally that combination of a few number of people who don't want to get vaccinated and a large number of, uh, of individuals who do get vaccinated especially uh, those who are vulnerable means that uh, for those who might not have the same full robust immune uh, response to their vaccination, they still can go about their lives and feel protected and feel safe.
0: The, more, the question I get more than any other, and particularly when I, uh, people know I'm uh, interviewing uh, scholars and, and scientists on, on the issue, if I'm vaccinated, um, can I get COVID? Uh, and if I can, can I spread it to others? I think you, impl- you stated as much in your answer, uh, but just to be clear, if I have two, um, you know, my fully vaccinated two shots, and I'm three weeks on, uh, and I'm in a room full of people with COVID, can I get it? And then can I walk down the street and give it to someone else?
1: The the answer to to the first part is definitely yes. Uh, we've seen breakthrough infections uh, in those who are in uh, who are vaccinated. They're rare. Uh, so you know, I don't want to make people feel hopeless. There's no reason to get vaccinated. It's much much less likely that you're going to get infected at all, and it's extraordinarily unlikely that you're gonna be hospitalized or die, which is the most important outcome. Um, In terms of, can you pass it on to others? Probably, but it's also probably unlikely. So this is some of the most important data we're waiting on is how likely it is that you would transmit disease further. Um, We didn't really know uh, as we started into vaccination what that number might be. It looks like it's probably a 90% reduction, even if you're infected, in the fact that you would transmit disease. So that's really reassuring.
0: So my final question, and I want to take it full circle, your uh, um, your field is um, uh, preparedness and for emergencies. Um, what have you learned going back? If you go in a time machine, prepare better uh, MGH or the nation in general, what should we have done better? And how will we prepare for the next uh, uh, pandemic like this? What, what what have we learned that is, is gonna persist into the future?
1: Oh goodness, I think that's probably many, <laughs> many hours worth of podcasts uh, that it would take <laughs> to give those, uh, those thoughts. But, I, I think you know the, the core is that we need to continually work on preparedness. I I don't mean to be a pessimist, but you know, preparing for bad things is what I do for a living. We're not done. There will be severe weather events. There will be other infectious disease outbreaks. There are other things we need to prepare for. You know, we need to understand uh, that our healthcare system was extraordinarily strained uh, in this pandemic, uh, and our public health system, frankly, is is broken uh, and and underfunded and and, and really not able to to do what's asked of it with the resources we're currently giving. Uh, So I think we need to redouble our efforts to uh, address healthcare preparedness planning so that we're ready for the next health threat. I think we have to be very, very honest about what we've seen uh, about the effects of health inequity uh, in the impact of COVID on our communities. And we need to redouble our investments and really redouble our efforts to address health inequity so that each of us has the chance to be uh, as healthy uh, as we possibly can be in our lives. Um And I think, uh you know, we need to be very honest, as we look back, which is, you know, part of what I'm doing, and so many of my colleagues across the whole country are doing, look at what we did that worked and what didn't work, uh, be scientific, be dispassionate about it, so that we keep the stuff that really was helpful and, uh, and don't redo our mistakes the next time around.
0: Okay. We'll have to leave that as our final answer. Thank you very much for joining the show today, Dr. Bittinger. I think our, our listeners learned a great deal. Um, and I'll just say this, uh, I hope we don't have any future disasters to have you come back on the show uh, to share your wisdom uh, in the future. Uh, but I hope if we do, you will consider joining us again. But thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure joining you.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there's several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. If you'd like to help others find Hubwonk, it would help us if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. If you have comments for me or questions or ideas on topics for future episodes, you're welcome to contact me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.